On today's episode, we'll make some predictions about the coming GOP debate. Uh, Then we'll turn to a piece that David Brooks wrote about why Americans have become so mean. We'll attempt to answer him. And then uh, we're going to talk about the so-called movement to ban sex education. Is that movement real? Where is it coming from? And what actually is happening in the evolution of sex education in America? And, you know, we'll take a little peek into some of the activism happening around schools generally and, you know, some of the related activities. So we're going to talk about all that and more on today's episode of The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, uh, we got a pretty pointed voicemail here from a listener named Alex, uh, I think largely aimed at me. I think it's a good place to start. Uh, Let's go to this clip. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the tone. Hi there, my name is Alex, and I was just calling about your latest episode, uh, particularly about decriminalization of drugs in Oregon. Um, I just wanted to chime in and say that I am totally Team Ricky here. I think uh, the kind of debate that that Robbie is making is the absolute insanity that you get these days from the, my former Progressive Party. I just can't understand how this kind of thinking is acceptable, especially given the situations that you've seen played out in Oregon, in San Francisco, Chicago, where I live. Um, it's just that's the kind of insanity that the Democratic Party pulls off now that just really makes people flee, literally and figuratively. But I think one issue that you guys kind of the kind of the elephant in the room, I think, rather than stepping over needles and dealing with um, waste in any particular way, I think kind of miss out on the fact that there's going to be literally tens of thousands of people that have already have mental health issues that are now amplified on crack, meth, whatever it may be. So just having a society where this is open and legal is just absolutely insanity to me. I I saw it happen when I lived in Austin, Texas, um, and just you're quite literally encouraging use of drugs and sidewalk camping and everything by making it not illegal. So I just I, I just can't fathom how intelligent, well educated people can be cool with decriminalization laws like this. It's just uh, mind boggling to me. So totally team Ricky, um but I appreciate you both and I love the show. Okay. Thank you. Bye. So a couple of things about this. I think on the decriminalization front, the question is, are you against any decriminalization? Are we talking about cannabis, psilocybin, et cetera, or is it just certain hard drugs and which hard drugs? And is it because of the paraphernalia? Because we talk about uh, needles, but then he mentioned crack and meth. Like, is there something specific to those three? Is it because of how severe the drug is? So I think there are a lot of questions about that, but I'll just take a step back and say a couple of things. Number one, we have 350,000 people in prison for drug offenses. That's about the population of New Orleans. So just picture that many people incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. Until the pandemic, which is the you know latest good data we had, police were making 1 million drug arrests per year. This comes at a time when we have the all-time lowest clearance rate for murders in this country. 
So we have a clearance rate that is now below 50%. We did a whole segment on this. And in Chicago, where this listener lives, fewer than 30% of murders are being cleared. We also talked about that. I don't know what the Austin clearance rate is where it came from. Uh, And so we have a real problem where the police aren't doing the kind of work that at least some people reasonably think they should be doing, count me among them. Uh, There's also this question around conservative liberal, and I don't think it's a conservative liberal thing. And I'll point the listener to Jacob Sullen and Reason, who just wrote a piece last week about the very Oregon issue that we talked about. And he makes a libertarian case in a libertarian publication that people view as a sort of right-leaning libertarian publication uh, that goes even further Mm. than I do. What was that? I'm sorry. Debatable on that front. I don't think it's a right-leaning libertarian publication. I think some other writers are are left-leaning, but this is certainly. But to say I, my point, I, yeah, being I don't that know. I don't is, think you'll find can you won't find conservatives on the side of like true conservative libertarians. Yes, true conservatives. Well, I now. would say like there is a and he makes a conservative argument in this piece for going even further than me, and he basically talks about it from personal responsibility and says, look. Like the way we talk about addiction is like that everybody's helpless, but we don't talk about alcohol that way, for example. So 17,000 people uh, are killed in drunk driving accidents every year. Now we don't ban alcohol because of that 17,000. We say that if you you know are responsible for a drunk driving accident, then you'll go to prison for a very long time. We've separated out the violent reckless act from the uh, either addiction or personal choice that people make. And so he was using a conservative language. All is to say, this is not a progressive or conservative thing. There are plenty of progressives and I think true libertarians who are with me on this. And then there are uh, plenty of people who are not. And I don't think it's a left-right issue. I think, yeah, this is one that I struggle with a lot because it's one that it definitely pushes me on the libertarian front. Thank you, Alex, for being on my team on this one. But I would say the more that I'm thinking about like there's a line that I think should be drawn in terms of what what drugs maybe we loosen up on or what drugs we don't ruin people's lives over. And there's a way that we can be more rehabilitation oriented in, in incarcerating people. I strongly believe that. But I think for me, the line that I draw is, is there a world where someone can casually use this drug and be a functional, normal person? And with alcohol, the answer is yes. With some psychedelics, I think the answer is yes. With marijuana, the answer is yes. With some really hard, dangerous drugs, the answer is just simply no. Like there's no one who's just dabbling in heroin for fun. And I think there's a there's a reasonable line to be drawn to say at a certain point, there's nobody who is using this drug habitually and consistently is anybody who is actually exercising their freedom as like an autonomous individual they're 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 enslaved by the substance and i think that there's a pro-human compassionate reform oriented vision that we can strive towards of course it's never going to be perfect i don't think that there's a perfect model of the justice system and it sounds very utopian but i do think that at a certain point we have to draw the line and say like someone who's who's strung out who's endangering themselves who's endangering other people out in public is just not something that we accept as a society. Yeah, I I would be curious. So then how do you feel about cocaine, which does seem to have a more recreational culture to it? I I would, I don't know. I don't put that on the, like, are there like, 
people on the streets doing cocaine? Like, is that? But this is the question. It's not a matter of just people doing it in the streets because Alex, I presume, and and you, I presume as well, like based on what you said, you'd also have a problem with people using heroin at home, right? Like it's not just a Mm -hmm. matter of public spaces because I think what people do is they take- Do you criminalize the substance? Yeah, I think so. So this is where I have an issue is like, whether it's cocaine or heroin, et cetera, like to me, these are personal choices. And yes, like it's, it's, it can be an addiction, but just alcoholism could be an addiction too. And, and people, we don't outlaw drinking alcohol, you know, drinking more but than there two are functional people who can, who can casually do that. Same with cocaine though. Derail their lives. You know, like, yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying I cocaine, I'm not sure about, but there are certainly harder drugs that I'm positive there's no functional person who's just like having a fun Saturday night and deciding to shoot up. Like that's not something that is within the the world that I'm aware yeah, of. Yeah. So the, I, I think at the bottom line, Alex, thank you for the voicemail. And I think, you know, my bottom line on this is I just don't think it is the function of the government to regulate vice. And so it's one thing if we talk about, like, I think there's a good debate to be had about public spaces, about the discarding of needles certainly about the violent acts that people commit, whether it's robbery or anything else after they've done the drugs, which are illegal anywhere, whether you decriminalized it or not. And I think we get into a little bit of this minority uh, report game where we start to predict the behavior of people because they fit a certain profile and then say, oh, look, we did this with the, I think, certain homelessness issues in New York City which is like, oh, look, people are pushing people onto tracks or they're attacking people on the subway train. So we need to be more aggressive in policing the mentally ill on the subway. And I'm like, no, we need to be more aggressive on policing people committing violence. We shouldn't be statistically running algorithms and saying, oh, like people who tend to use drugs or tend to be, you know, haven't bathed in a week are a danger to society. We should say, well, people who put their hands on other people are a danger to society and we should free up our police officers to actually do the job of investigating people and keeping people safe by actually clearing crimes that are violent crimes, which once again, we're not even doing half of right now. The debate, what is it tomorrow now? Where yes. will you be watching the debate? I don't know, honestly. Uh, well, I, I think a step, step back is to say, Ricky, like, do you think anything meaningful is going to happen in this debate? This is the first debate. It's being held in Milwaukee tomorrow night. Mm-hmm. It's being hosted by Fox News, 9 p.m. Eastern time. Brett Baer, Martha McCallum are going to be the moderators. It appears there are going to be eight candidates on stage. But noticeably, uh, the presumptive front runner pretty solid front runner uh, in the form of President Donald Trump will not be participating in this debate and probably any debates based on what he said. Yeah, I think it's going to be super interesting. I don't know that it'll necessarily move the needle, although I'm not, I don't know. Like, I I think Chris Christie is going to be super interesting to watch. I think the optics of Trump not being there, I think will confirm, those Republican voters who are not in the Trump camp right now in the primary, I think will more firmly not be in the Trump camp as a result of the fact that Trump is not here. I think he probably could have pulled some people over that maybe are kind of keeping him in the back of his mind and maybe they voted for him the last time around, but they'd rather not think about him or actually look at him. And 
he will not persuade any any of those voters to come over. Um, but I think Christie and the way that he handles the debate will be interesting. I'm curious to see if he starts taking aim at others who will not take aim at Trump. Um, I'm thinking about Vivek certainly on that front. I think Vivek will be, I my prediction is he will go up in the polls. And I, I'm curious to see, um, there was some leaked reports out, out of the DeSantis camp that he was planning to attack Vivek, which is interesting. So I, I'd be curious to see if that actually does transpire in the end. Yeah. And as things stand right now, the gold standard for polling in Iowa is done by the Des Moines Register in partnership with NBC. This is a pollster named Ann Seltzer, who's been at this for a long time. She has, from what I understand, the best track record. And she just put out her poll. It has Trump at 42% in Iowa, DeSantis at 19, Scott at nine, Haley at six, Pence at six, Christie at five, and Ramaswamy at four. I was shocked at how low Ramaswamy was based on, you know, just what I've seen from his campaign. And he seemed to be overperforming in, in a lot of the national polls. So that's one thing I think is just worth mm-hmm. seeing. Like if, if you're in fact right, which, you know, I tend to agree with you that he seems to be better at this whole campaigning thing than a lot of other people. Um, I sense that he'll do pretty well yeah, on that stage. I think he'll go up. DeSantis might go down further. I wouldn't be surprised if DeSantis goes down further. Well, what's fascinating about DeSantis, so he's on this, uh, you know, his tour to try to hit every county in Iowa, which is really fascinating. He's made pretty significant progress on that. But in that poll, and in that poll, he is the solid second place right now. And there's some data in here that's interesting. So Trump is leading DeSantis among evangelicals in Iowa by 27 points. This is despite the fact that DeSantis has the support of a lot of members of the evangelical leadership, including Bob Vanderplatz, who's the president of the family leader conservative Christian group. Uh, and Scott and Pence have both been like really courting evangelical votes, including like, you know, adding biblical verses to their stump speeches and endorsing a national limit on abortions after 15 weeks. 66% of Trump backers said their decision is firm as opposed to just 31% of DeSantis supporters. That is a bad stat for DeSantis. But mm-hmm. on the positive side for DeSantis, DeSantis' favorability in Iowa is actually a point higher than uh, Trump's, but they're basically the same, 66 and 65%. So his you know, translation for DeSantis is his, net, his Iowa favorability is better than his national favorability. That favorability cuts in a certain direction. The sort of firmness of the self-reported Trump vote, though, is, I would say, alarming for the rest of the field, especially for DeSantis. Yeah, I think I think the person that's at biggest risk on, in this debate, I think, is DeSantis. If he somehow pulls off a resounding success, I think this is like his make-or-break moment. And the only person who's who... Everyone else only stands to gain from there. He stands to lose. I don't think Trump is going to lose. Um, and it's just going to be a matter of like who is going to be that that second runner up challenger to Trump. And I could see him being dethroned from that place. Um, I do think on the national stage, he's probably a wiser choice for the Republican Party. But um, I don't know. I'm going to say I'm bullish on Vivek's uh, performance going into tomorrow. So we will do an update on Thursday and give our takes on how we think they did. Let's talk about this piece. David Brooks uh, wrote a uh, pretty long and interesting piece for The Atlantic uh, asking the question, why Americans have become so mean? And he mixes, uh, you know, a lot of different data about, you know, the question itself, like, have we actually become more mean? He talks about certain anecdotes about restaurant owners and servers having to deal with more rude behavior, you know, people at hospitals doing the same, 
And then he talks about other data that one could argue is connected or not to this, which has hate crimes, murder rates, you know, percentage of people giving to charity, which I think I found shocking in 2000, two thirds of American households gave to charity in 2018, fewer than half did. Uh, and then he had this sort of lexical kind of search where words associated with sort of morals have been going down over the course of the 20th century. And so basically, like, I, I want to kind of like put aside the question of people, whether people think Americans actually have become more mean. Uh, I think in order for this piece to be persuasive to anybody, you'd have to kind of accept that premise, which I do. Uh, Ricky, did this piece hit home for you? Do you think he's onto something? I mean, I have to, to the question that you're kind of side tabling, I don't know that it, I necessarily believe that we've gotten meaner in any meaningful way. I think that we've made a tremendous amount of progress in terms of like, like people being accept, more accepting of, of different races and, and sexual orientations. And like, I think that we have become a more open society by and large. I don't know that we're necessarily meaner in our spirit. I think we've become more faithless. I think we've also, and what, whether it's just from a religious standpoint or just like having like a central moral principle that, which I agree with him, we've, we've kind of lost that, that mooring of tying kindness to a greater narrative. But I also think to me, I don't know if I see it as meanness as much as antisocial behavior. And he goes through a bunch of different theses here about technology and whether it's social media that's that's driven us apart or if it's the sociological community disorganization and the fact that we no longer um, congregate in the way that we used to or whether it's a demography thing and an issue of people becoming insecure about the white minority um, in the country, which I don't totally see, but maybe that's my northern coastal bias. And then the last one that he posits is the economy potentially and growing inequality. To me, I think people have definitely gotten weirder and like stranger and it's it's less mean and it's more socially just off and wrong. And I think it got worse after the pandemic. And I think that there's two causes here in my, my theory that I'll posit. The first is just that social media and the way that we're connecting has so fundamentally distorted the way that we interact with each other. And that's been a reality more and more as time has gone on, especially younger people who've grown up with that and they're like, you know, social media in their pockets, that's their primary means of connecting with friends growing up or in their teenage years. And then you compound that on top of a pandemic where you force everyone who was maybe still doing something community oriented or still connecting with people in person to then lock down and become digitized in that same way and also go through something kind of traumatic and um, have their lives upended. And then I think we, we've we come out of like the post-2020 era just like socially inept in a way that I feel like you see more public freakouts and like weird things happening and people like you look at the rates of drug abuse and and binge drinking and like people are acting more erratically. People are not acting like members of a society healthy society more and more often. And I think that those two pieces to me are more persuasive than this like general, like we're just mean grouchy people now. Well, you know, what's interesting is, you know, if I, I came into this piece basically largely attributing the sort of state of things, I, I, I think it's, it certainly starts with selfishness. Um, you know, I think like whether it's turned into meanness or not, I, I tend to agree with that. But I think like most data definitely points to we are more 
some could say self-absorbed, others could say isolated, whatever, or both of those things are related, obviously. But he points to the crucial turning point being post-World War II, where he says that, you know, there were kind of two schools of thought coming out of World War II and, and the response to World War II. One was like this Reinhold Niebuhr camp, which believed that World War II exposed us uh, and that we needed to double down on moral formation, like a sense like the fascists and the Nazis were immoral and that we need to kind of double down on the right kind of moral education. So more of like a hierarchical shared understanding of what's right and wrong. And then there were the humanists like Carl Rogers who focused on the the question of authority itself. So who said, all right, like the rigid hierarchies are the issue and that's what leads to oppression. And Brooks seems to argue that, well, actually the humanists won out, which is interesting because that's almost associated with a left-wing phenomenon, but I think the humanists were coupled with a Reaganite kind of capitalism, which has a certain individualistic bend to it too. And what we wind up having right now are kind of like a conversation about self-actualization. And even when we talk about morals, it's often posited at an individual level, not a collective level, not an institutional level. And then you start to couple that with just the failings of institutions over time, whether it's the Catholic church, at least where I grew up, uh, and others. And you start to say, all right, well, the institutions were crumbling anyway because of the individualistic framework. They also were exposed in certain ways for certain flaws that they have, which would actually feed into the humanistic argument. And then you're kind of left with weakened, in some cases, non-existent institutions. And you also have like a, a language of individualism, which brings so much good, but also that perhaps came at the expense of the collective, whether it's your church, community, your family, et cetera. And he would argue that that happened all before all this, the pandemic, social media, et cetera. Yeah, I think maybe it's just become more obvious in, in my estimation and and things that are like overtly mean, like like something happening in, like, what did he say? In restaurants, people freaking out in restaurants and people freaking out in hospitals and stuff. I Maybe it's just that I'm more plugged in now, but I feel like that sort of stuff is happening more in real life and like bleeding out into just like the societal dysfunction after the pandemic. But I would also say like to your point and to his point, probably marriage rates and and birth rates declining and and people, I mean, if there's one like thing that fixes individualism in its most chronic and like off-putting senses, I think it's, I mean, you just are forced if you have a family or if if you're settling down or if the nuclear family is something that's in like a part of your world, you can't really be, an individualist anymore. You don't really have a choice if you're actually somebody who's participating in a healthy family structure and you become part of a larger system. And I do think that the breakdown of the nuclear family is definitely a factor as well because now we're all kind of like the protagonists of our own story. And I think sometimes that for some people, not all people, but for some people that that's a lack of of purpose and like a, a central grounding thing that is pretty inherent to our society until very recently. So I think that that can play into it as well, for sure. He says that we are living in an era of vulnerable narcissists. Uh, and he, he defines this, he says, vulnerable narcissists are the more common figures in our day, people who are also addicted to thinking about themselves, but who often feel anxious, insecure, avoidant, uh, intensely sensitive to rejection. They scan for hints of disrespect. Their self-esteem is wildly in flux. Their uh, uncertainty about their inner worth triggers cycles of distrust, shame, and hostility. And this turns into bitterness, 
social pain is ultimately a response to a sense of rejection. And he basically then goes into a political argument. He quotes Ryan Streeter of the American Enterprise Institute, who says that lonely people are seven times more likely to say they're active in politics than young people who aren't lonely. And I'm going to give you one more quote on this, Ricky. He says, politics also provide an easy way to feel a sense of purpose. You don't have to feed the hungry or sit with the the widow to be moral. You just have to experience the right emotion. You delude yourself that you're participating in civic life by feeling properly enraged at the other side. That righteous fury rising in your gut lets you know that you are enraged in caring about this country. The culture war is a struggle that gives life meaning, end quote. Yeah, no, I think that's totally true. And I think that politics have kind of taken the place of religion. And like, this is not passing judgment on people who are, who are not in families or who not who do not have faith. I just think those are grounding, anchoring facets of life for the majority of human history until very recently. But I think politics for a lot of people has taken that, that or at least occupied part of the space that that is missing as a result of religion. And I think definitely true that that there's kind of like a vacuous sense of purpose sometimes that that you can derive from it even someone who does it as a job sometimes it, it does feel like from time to time it, it's just like lost in this noise of back and forth crossfire all the time but I don't I mean what is if you had to boil it down he talks about all these different theories and stuff what would your single like obviously it's all interconnected but what would your single diagnosis be for the most meaningful contributor to this trend that he's pointing out. I do think it has a thousand fathers and mothers. I really do. I know that's like a cop out, but I do think it's a complicated result of a lot of different forces in society. I think he does a really good job of laying them out. I would say that it's interesting that it was David Brooks who wrote this article because I had this experience. David Brooks wrote this book called The Second Mountain, and it must have been five to 10 years ago. I can't remember the exact date, but I read this book. I thought it was amazing. It's all about essentially like, how do you think about the second phase of your life and learning from your mistakes and recommitting actually to a lot of the things that this piece talks about, community, a sense of purpose, your family, values, slowing things down, becoming more reliable. And my father, who I would say is a a living embodiment of the negative parts of this phenomenon, like didn't invest in his family, has been married four times, can't live in the same place for longer than a certain amount of time you know, is a doctor, but refuses to truly be happy and acknowledge like the gift of medicine and how that can give you purpose in life. He's run for office. He's allowed his politics to dominate his life. And I gave him this book, uh, The Second Mountain. And I was like, hey, like, this is a really, like, you should read this, like, hint, hint, like, you should do some of the things in this book. And his reaction to this was like straight out of this thesis of Brooks here. My dad takes a look at the book and he goes, oh, uh, it's the equivalent of like David Brooks. Oh, he's a rhino or something like that, whatever the term of the day was. Meaning like David Brooks was a conservative. He like, I guess, turned against certain figures on the right at a certain point. And just because of the politics, my dad didn't want to, it wasn't even a political book, but just because of the politics, my dad dismissed that. Meanwhile, his son is in front of him being like, hey man, maybe you should like live a deeper life and be a little bit more reliable. And he couldn't see it with his own eyes. And so to me, it was just interesting reading this because it's like, it's depressingly familiar, I guess is the point. But what would you just ascribe it to? I, I still think it's the number one thing in my opinion is is the way that 
social media or like the number one driver of it is the way that technology has enabled us to feign togetherness and community and connectedness and fool ourselves into thinking that connecting online or or plugging in or FaceTiming someone is the same as actually interacting with them in person. And I still think that that's the number one thing that allows us to like go into our own universes to, to kind of disembody people from like, I don't know. It's just, I, th- I think that it, it allows you to close in on yourself and not see people for the complex people with their own narratives and their own stories and their own lives when you interact with them out in the world when you if you actually do in today's day and age and I think I I definitely saw in my generation too like people growing up with an iPhone and stuff and and people who were most plugged in were that had the most antisocial behaviors when they were out in the real world and you think about like things that people would say and do online like or if you think about like what people send you on Twitter or like anonymous trolls and stuff like the things that you know that they would never say in real life to your face they would never I mean maybe there's like a small proportion of absolute psychopaths but like normal people with jobs and lives and careers and and friends say like heinous shit online when they're enabled to do so well you know it's interesting you should say this uh because I was listening to Sam Harris this morning where he was talking about like a the cousin of this point, which is basically the rise of, and forgive me, listeners, he's going to, he and I are going to use the word assholes here. So if you have a kid in the car or something, maybe turn it down or something. But uh, I just basically, said heinous shit. Yeah, maybe there's like a rise of assholes. And he, Harris made an interesting point because I, I hadn't, I hadn't been able to organize my thing around this, but I've noticed it, not just in the public square, but just in the language around the permission structure for people to be assholes. I've just kind of noticed it in my own life and also in public life in a way that I've never seen it before. And I thought he had a really interesting description of what's going on here. Let's go to this clip. Being an asshole is not just a matter of style. It's a matter of substance. Because to be an asshole is to care about the wrong things. It is to not have one's priorities straight. Of course, many of us don't have our priorities quite straight. But only an asshole is inclined to celebrate this failure in public. To be an asshole is to mistake one's vices for virtues. It is to fundamentally misunderstand what it means to live a good life and to encourage this misunderstanding in others. It is to mistake shamelessness for integrity and a furious self-absorption for strength. An asshole is not just someone who lacks civility or tact. In fact, assholes can be superficially charming and probably must be, to succeed. The problem is never just on the surface, whatever can be seen there. It's at the core. The problem with assholes is that though they might occasionally appear to care about other things and other people, they only truly care about themselves, whatever causes they attach to, just inflate the self. Whatever love they express is instrumental. Because whatever their faults, There is one common moral failing of which all true assholes are perpetually innocent. Hypocrisy. You can't be a hypocrite if you have no standards by which you can be discovered to have fallen short. If you are content to be selfish and dishonest and uncharitable and to be seen to be this way by others, you achieve a kind of malignant Buddhahood. So Ricky, this reminds me, I can't remember if I was you I was telling this story to, but... I was in the airport coming back 
from somewhere. And on both the boarding side and the arrival side, the same guy cut me and everybody else in line. And the first time I was just like, all right, whatever. Like this probably was a misunderstanding. The second time I said to him, I was like, hey man, you cut it. You just cut this line? Uh, and he goes, yes. <laughs> and I said, what's wrong with you? And he goes, what's wrong with you? And I guess this gets to the point of this, which is like that guy, for better or worse, and I would say for worse, for sure, but like what he's not doing is like lying or whatever. He's just like, this is who I am. My worldview says I'm not going to play by the rules of everybody else. And this is totally anecdotal, but I've, I seem to encounter more people like that these days than ever before. It seems to be increasing every day. And I think the narrative that those people tell themselves, and they're certainly, and I want to get into the politics of this or whatever, um, there are definitely assholes all over the political spectrum. This seems to be a new moral argument that people are making, or at least it seems to be more prominent than ever, which is that we are in this sort of Hobbesian environment uh, and it's just about being you, maximizing your own self-interest. And there's a moral relativism that pervades where people are just being more explicit about it than ever before. And I find it really alarming. Yeah, I do too. And I think part of it is probably at the same time where maybe we're all becoming like more passive. Like I, I also don't know that this is necessarily a good thing, but there's probably was like a day and age where a guy cutting in line like that would be more likely to get like punched in the face as a result or something like that. Like, I don't, I think there's like, we're all a little bit more permissive of that at the same time, perhaps as well. But I would also say like, I think people have been weirder in very recent history and like probably more overt in very recent history, but by and large, like there have been assholes for as long as there have been people and we can all be assholes sometimes. And so I don't think that it's like this, completely new thing in general and i think by and large in terms of like actual assholeness the fact that like i think i think we've moved away from it to a pretty large degree especially when you think about like people acting on prejudices and and how how much progress that we've made as a society in the past couple decades that in terms of like true meanness i think we're less mean i think it's just like this this kind of petty dumb stuff that doesn't really matter in the end like cutting lines in which we've just lost a little bit of social decency yeah that's yeah i would say like my sort of assessment is that the sort of the the behavior short of the extreme violence or or like explicit racism like somewhere in there like like short of that there's been some movement is my theory right which is like and i guess like brooks's theory it's just like basic decency things that i think that we've just like been like and the, eh, whatever we'll just leave the that absence the of a morality right i think that's part of it is like sometimes it's not necessarily manifesting as like a malice although there certainly is that but it's like a a lack of a coherent shared set of beliefs to animate us as a society anymore and so just like quickly on the solution side of things people could read about it but brooks posits a couple of things mandatory social skills courses which i think gets to some of the things you've written and talked about ricky moral curriculum National service, intergenerational national service, which I find a really interesting idea. Moral organizations, um, which I, I'm really fascinated by and certainly have been thinking about a lot lately. I went down to Mississippi to see a healthcare company that I would classify as a moral organization, which is like this collection of physicians, doctors, and others who uh, I think have like 
built a model of medicine that's serving Medicaid patients and others in Mississippi that, yes, is a profitable business, but could be a lot more profitable if not for the fact that the people in it are committed to solving poverty in Mississippi. So they're kind of like a benevolent corporation. And I think they're really amazing. Shout out to them over at Vigilance. Uh, And then he talks about politics as a moral enterprise and sort of reclaiming our politics to be less of sort of the domain of narcissists and sociopaths and more of a place for people to truly advance uh, in a new kind of ethics, which I think is going to be really hard. It's obviously something we talked about a lot on this podcast. Should we bring back finishing school? <laughs> I don't know. I, I have major <laughs> questions about the education part of this and whether it could actually happen. The campaign to end sex education. What's going on here? So the the kind of peg for us to speak, talk about this is this article um, from the Popular Information Substack, which is going off of a recording from the Moms for Liberty Summit meeting recently and a specific little, I guess, presentation they had called Comprehensive Sex Education, Sex Ed or Sexualization. And the the framing of this Substack article, I'll take some issue with, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, I, I have some too. Um, But they say that this is part of a larger Moms for Liberty's larger attempt to eliminate or reconstruct sex ed. and. There's definitely some weird stuff that goes on in this recording, according to this article, including bashing the idea of consent being taught in sex ed, um, claims that critical race theory is is basically being pushed through via sex ed, taking issue with sexual rights and sexual citizenship as part of sex education, and a lot of kind of admittedly bizarre hyperbole, um, especially when they open up to the the audience to ask questions, including <laughs> someone saying that a boy can start the process of cutting his penis off right there in his high school on his lunch and insinuations that like abortion pills are just being popped right and left in schools and facilitated by schools. Um, so the article takes, takes aim at Kelly... Shinkoski, who is leading this uh, Moms for Liberty Summit. Um, and Or the breakout. Yeah, she's leading the breakout. Yeah. Yes, the breakout. And and frames it as is definitely part of a larger crusade that Moms for Liberty has to potentially get rid of sex ed, period. So that's the part that I'm not so as convinced about. But certainly this is an example of some potentially concerning rhetoric around the Moms for Liberty sex ed situation. I think, Ricky, I know you, I actually found this article by accident this morning when I was just researching for the segment, but I, I, you interviewed the head of Moms for Liberty, which I want to come back to. And I want to broaden out to talk about Moms for Liberty generally in a second. I think this, as somebody who's run many, many summits, um, you know, for ARENA, I want to say at the outset that a breakout session is not necessarily illustrative of the founding organization. It can be, but it's not always true. Like there are a lot of things that happen at my summits that I just still to this day probably don't know what the conversation was. And then there are a lot of things that happened that I disagreed with. And then I actually made it known that I disagree with. And then there's a third category, which are things I disagree with, but it's just part of running a summit is that you you sanction discussions and debates amongst people that you aren't necessarily with. So I'm going to start with that caveat. This particular breakout session I think is fascinating for a number of reasons. One is, 
I had never heard this argument about consent before. Uh, and for our audience, I, I just at least want to try to reconstruct it because I do think it appears to be something that people are talking about some in some corners, right? Which is, from what I understand- I've and, never heard this before. Yeah, neither have I. Just yes. to put that out there. I haven't, and I'm in this world of people who think about these things. I, this is news to me. So my understanding here is that they're saying that, or at least Shankoski, and, and a lot of this we have to rely on popular information's kind of re, recounting of this recording and what they share and don't share, which- like I should just put that for what it is. Like there are certainly parts of this that definitely seem that indicate that popular information has a slant on the story. But the uh-huh. the yeah. the, okay. the argument, as I understand it, is that is almost like an abstinence only cousin. Basically, saying like just teaching kids to say no to sex generally and any kind of version of it, whether it's like inappropriate, illegal type of activity or just like peer to peer stuff. Like the proper response to that is not to teach them how to engage in consent, but to just say no. So at least to to be at least like mildly charitable to the person running a session, I don't necessarily think that's the right approach, but I think that's different than saying kids shouldn't understand what consent is generally, right? Uh, That's at least like Mm -hmm. my, does that make any sense? They're saying that I think, yeah, I think... I I might bungle this, but I think what she's essentially saying is that by teaching consent at a certain age or early on, the insinuation is that you are able to consent or that that's something that is a conversation to be had. Whereas she's saying at a certain threshold or age or point, that's not even a conversation that should be had because kids should not be thinking yeah. about this. And my sense is yeah. if that is in fact her argument, which is a sort of version of abstinence only type of argument that basically if you just teach kids to say no to sex, whether it's with peers or other people who are like older and engaged in illegal activity. I don't agree with that approach, but I don't think that that is like some crazy idea. Like I think that's been a long running contour of this debate in American society. I think she kind of inartfully went about it based on at least the, the excerpts that I've seen. There are other parts of this that I think are probably more objectionable. One is, and this is according to the recording, that Shankoski objected to curriculums that recognize LGBTQ people and their relationships without treating them as abnormal. And this is a quote from the recording. Heteronormativity is the norm that a male and female relationship is the norm. I don't know, that's like weirdly not grammatical, but uh, but this very idea is very much to remove or to get away from that concept, she said. So I, it's a little bungled, this sort of grammar, but essentially saying like heteronormativity should be taught as the norm. Now, I'm not sure that's what the American people think. So the norm is a, a statement about what the American people believe or what they should believe, right? That's what I guess what she means by the norm. Gallup has been reporting on this. Support for gay marriage was 27% in 1996 to 71% today. When they ask people, are gay and lesbian relationships morally acceptable? 64% believe they're acceptable. 33% believe they're unacceptable. I'm just not sure that the public is with Jankowski on this. And so that, that's just like an issue where I'm like, hmm, like what's your real issue with sex ed? Like, so, so far we've heard this consent issue, which I think, although like, there's a charitable reading of it that makes it like an understandable yet argument I don't necessarily agree with. And then you have this LGBTQ argument. I'm starting to stack up these arguments. I'm like, all right, like 
give me your best point for why sex ed should be eliminated from schools because I'm not seeing it yet. Okay, but I, this is where I'm not seeing any of that is where is she saying to eliminate it? Where is that said? Because I, that's the insinuation of this article and that's what I take issue with because she also says, like she kind of looks back on on the old days and she reflects on them positively when it was about safety and and pregnancy prevention and birth control options and preventing STIs. And to me, somebody who's saying that's a better model of sex ed is not someone who's saying get rid of sex ed, period. There's, I'm sure that there are people in this organization and I'm actually among them who would say, I want to eliminate sex ed for certain age groups. I don't think there's any reason to have a sexual education class before like, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to make some national decree, but I think that there's certainly a reasonable threshold in age where you say like, this is just not something that kids need to be talking about yet. And if there's a reason that they need to be, then that might mean that there's something broader and more wrong in the like context they're growing up in potentially. But I mean, there's, I think there's a, a case to be made to say it's not appropriate at a certain age. And there's also a case to be, be made that to say, maybe we should, potentially just like talk about the very legitimate obvious glaring issues of sexual education in terms of like actual like risk prevention and harm harm reduction and not anything that's that goes beyond that like at that point isn't that the the family's decision how to how to talk about sexuality and gender and and all those associated things like at a certain point that's not yeah I, I actually uh, in hindsight i agree with you like i'm looking at this piece i'm not sure maybe maybe they saw something that they didn't they weren't clear about in the article in this presentation but i think it's more like she wants to go back to the way things were it's a hit piece yeah and i think that the it's a hit piece yeah i i agree it it, it definitely is has made up its mind <laughs> before you get- I also don't like, this is one thing that I have an issue with and I can't stand when people do this. And I'm sorry that I'm just gonna like basically present a point for my book right now. But I don't like these vague insinuations of like other wrongdoings on people. It's like part, like I don't know why I need to know about something that Kelly retweeted in the past and how that's relevant to the argument at hand. If we're talking about sex education, I don't care that she retweeted something that says diversity is segregation. I don't think that's relevant to the immediate point. And I also would point out that if you actually looked at the tweet itself, it was making an allusion to 1984. It's not one that I would retweet personally, but she was not saying that diversity is literally segregation. And I don't like these, like when we're talking about something with legitimate implications for for children for our education system when we have an issue at hand that we're discussing which is sexual education i don't know why we need to make these vague insinuations that this person is a bad and wrong person and i think that both sides of the political spectrum are very guilty and of doing that sort of thing and and painting a person's character without actually addressing their point but it's something that bugs me quite a lot yeah i i totally agree with you and i think this question, it's almost like a version of the ad hominem. It's like, when is it appropriate, right? Like, if we're talking about Taylor Lorenz, which we've talked about many times, like, like what is an acceptable thing to bring up about previous social media behavior that she's had or not? And it's a complicated one where, if I remember correctly, we did talk about pretty expansively different things that she said that are baddie. And I think, like, the question is, like, when is something relevant or not? Like, one of the examples that they cite in this article is that this expert 
I guess, was floating conspiracy theories about the government somehow being behind the Maui wildfires. I may be bungling the details there or whatever. Just retweeted um, something. But yeah, but yeah. just, re- I mean, like, come on. Like, you wouldn't retweet that. I wouldn't retweet that. Uh, and it, the reason why I wouldn't retweet it. No, 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 no but I'm saying that's, that's it's a judgment thing. Flo- saying floating yeah. is, yeah. And, no, and I, I guess, and I I guess like, do I really care? No, but there, there is a fine line and I, and I tend, and I hope listeners hear this most often, I tend not to talk about this kind of stuff unless it is relevant to the authority or state of mind of somebody, right? Like if somebody, like a good example is like, we're talking about the alien, um, the UFO hearing. Now, if one of those people in there like had a history of saying things that were a bit off and unsubstantiated or proven wrong, then it is relevant. It's almost like somebody at the witness stand. At a certain point, you're like, you bring it up. Or if they're holding people to a standard that they are not adhering to, sometimes these things are relevant. But I agree. Now, a much more interesting piece about, I think, Moms for Liberty was this piece by Rob Pondicio, who candidly, uh, he and I have, have had some disagreements over the years, kind of come out of the same school of, of sort of education reform. Um, but he wrote this, wrote this long piece, we'll put in, in the show notes, where he went to a Moms for Liberty conference. And I think this gets to the question, well, what is the overall project of Moms for Liberty? And I think it's a really interesting read because it, 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 I think it highlights a very powerful organization. I mean, this, this conference had DeSantis, Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, et cetera, the candidates going there. It has 120,000 plus members, 300 chapters in 45 states. It appears that they've won, according to his uh, Pondicio's reporting, at least half of their uh, elections. They've elected more people to school board seats, et cetera, than Teach for America, which has been explicit about trying to get people elected. And I think the piece does a pretty good job of saying, all right, like, and I think it's framed as like, who's afraid of Moms for Liberty? which I think is, it almost is like a provocative title in the sense that it's like, it focuses on the kind of Southern Poverty Law Center and others who call it a hate group. But I think it eventually comes around to, I think, the balance in the final section of it when it basically says that in some cases, Monster Liberty are their own worst enemy because they're tolerating a lot of insane behavior within their ranks and in some cases promoting it. And I think that's kind of where I come out here, which is I think there's a lot of like, crazy talk about labeling them a hate group, which I have not seen. Like I, I haven't seen enough justification for that. And I also think it's not the most effective way to engage with them. But I think there are also major flaws in the way Moms for Liberty is going about their business. Yeah, there's definitely been some rather unflattering moments to come out of their summits and and meetings. And I think one of the things that works against them probably is the chapter model and just how disaggregated it is and yet how central it is at the same time. Like it's clearly an entity and a force to be reckoned with, but then it's also being operated on the local level by so many individual people who obviously at a certain point are going to do and say dumb things or like someone circulated something that quoted Hitler, I think recently. And then for some reason there was like doubling down on that because the content of the quote was something that they were standing by. There definitely have been mistakes made. And I think a lot of that is actually just based on the fact that this is a very grassroots sort of movement and situation and normal non-political people getting involved or normal everyday people perhaps. Um, And then some of them of course are going to act abnormally, but I mean the, the reaction. And I think like, I almost wonder if labeling people a hate group when it's clearly not a hate group 
or I mean, there's, I'm sure there's hateful people in it. I'm sure that hateful things have been said, as is the case with a lot of organizations. And you can take issue with certain aspects of their missions for sure. But like, I think in a weird way, labeling someone that way and and like the Southern Poverty Law Center flagging them as like a, a basically like akin to the KKK and on this list of hate organizations almost pushes people to like in even greater extreme when you're when you're telling them that the reasonable people within that ranks that advocating for something reasonable is hateful, then it almost like radicalizes them in a in a kind of weird way. I, I'm not sure if I'm describing that properly, but I feel like for a lot of people that are there, they are literally just moms who don't feel comfortable with the type of sexual education going on in certain schools. And whether or not that's right is up for, up to you to decide. But I do think that there are legitimate questions to be asked about some sex ed curricula, at least in some parts of the country. But I think the unfortunate reality is that they're like the best case that I can make that conservatives are eliminating sexual education is just needlessly cumbersome banning books or asking um, asking school districts, not banning the book, but asking school districts to send a full catalog of all the gazillion titles that you that you flag as potentially problematic. And then like the fact that you're making people jump through so many hoops to do something that should not require all those hoops ends up being censorious in and of itself, which I think is what we're seeing more so than like conservatives going through and saying, we're going to ban sex education, period. Yeah, I think like, I think there's a substantive debate at the heart of all this that I think is getting lost in the sort of sea of like, what did this chapter do? What did that chapter do, et cetera? And it's, I think it's encapsulated, the debate that should be being had right now is encapsulated in this one sentence from Pondicio's piece, and I'll read it for you. The basic thrust of Moms for Liberty's advocacy, that parents, not the government, should have the ultimate say in what children are taught in public schools, has legs, end quote. Okay? That parents, not the government, should have the ultimate say in what children are taught in public schools. So I'm like, huh, not, what kind of sentence is that? Public schools are the government. They're an extension of government. You elect people to run public schools. And I, what I would want to know from Pondicio and what I want to know from Moms for Liberty, and if I ever had a chance to sit down with them, I would clear aside all this other stuff and I would have a long and respectful conversation to be like, what does that mean? Does that mean that the loudest voice in the room shows up to the school board meeting or the school and demands something? Even if the if if twenty four kids in this in the classroom, their parents are fine with whatever is happening, but one voice is really loud and demands change. How do you how do you deal with that, right? Or what if it's five versus twenty? What if it's evenly split? And sex education is a good example of this. Like people are taxpayers, right? Like if I sent my kids to uh, middle school, hypothetical kids to middle, middle school down the street, I would not only be okay with a certain like pretty aggressive sex education, I would want it. And I wouldn't demand it of other people if it's possible, right? So why couldn't you also have split track sex education, right? Where like some of the kids go to one place and some of the kids go to the other. We used to do that at Republic where the very option of doing sex, sex ed was something that people would opt into. We'd send a letter home saying, this is what we plan to teach in sex ed. If you want your kid to be opted out of this, tell us. And you actually had to opt in too. So you had to send the letter back saying, I want my kid to go to that. Like, like that's a say necessarily, but it's not like this direct democracy on every decision a school makes, if you know what I'm saying. Like, I would want to know more about what this means in practice. And I think this is either the 
the answer to that question is either going to be the strength or the limit of Moms for Liberty, because I think there are a lot of parents who look around and are like, I don't want my school board meetings to turn into shouting matches. I don't want all this acrimony. I just want a stable public school. And there are actually some points you're making, Moms for Liberty, that I'm kind of with you on. But then I see some other things happening, the chaos, some of these like statements about like, you know, heteronormativity or whatever, where I'm like, ah, I might not be for that either. So like, I do, do have major questions here, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I think the best answer is that like what what they are doing that's extremely effective is getting people elected to school boards who who otherwise wouldn't be engaged in the process, who are largely mothers and parents who are concerned. And so that's one way to actually put parents in that driver's seat by making them part of the government and getting them civically involved. And that's something they've been remarkably effective in doing. So, I mean, there's probably a lot of extraneous weird activism that's happening, but in terms of actually getting people, getting parents to become the government in that way is a really creative way to actually fulfill that that mission. Yeah. My sort of word of caution to the Moms for Liberty people is like in this piece, they quote, Pondicio quotes a, a Jim McLaughlin poll that says a clear majority of parents feel that K to 12 education is on the wrong track. You and I already talked about how weird this polling data is. I think it was you and me or either me and Chris Stewart. But basically there's tons of polls like that. That's polling that actually we as education reformers love data like that because it says radical, like we want to make big change. The problem is for every poll that says uh, parents are dissatisfied with public schools, there are two that say they're satisfied with their public schools. So, you know, cautionary note number one is I, I wouldn't overstate how unhappy parents are. Two is school board elections are very low turnout elections. And just as like the teachers unions, and I think a lot of people I disagree with have been very successful at getting their people onto uh, school boards. Nashville is a good example of this. They also overinterpreted their mandate in you know higher turnout elections, general elections, presidential elections, governor's elections. It may not happen for Moms for Liberty if they get their messaging right. And I've wrote, I wrote a whole piece about how the take back control message for education can be very effective. I just think that they can be their own worst enemies if they start harboring and making mainstream within their movement some of the things that we talked about here, which I think the, like a lot of parents are not going to be on board with. So that's my words of caution for them. But they have been very effective. I don't think this popular information piece was a very helpful read in many ways. And I think it's 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 unfortunately reflective of a lot of the reporting on Moms for Liberty. It's like it's really hard hard to get to the bottom of actually what's going on right now. Well, thank you everyone for listening today. We will be back on Thursday. We'll give you our reactions to the debate. In the meantime, please rate, review, and subscribe. Send us a voicemail. Uh, give us your take on the debate, perhaps if you're listening after uh, Wednesday. Our phone number is 321-200-0570. And we will be back on Thursday. <laughs>